This morning we're coming to 1 Peter 2 as we've been working our way through this wonderful epistle of 1 Peter. So I'd invite you to open your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. And I'll begin this morning by reading our text for us beginning in verse 4. 1 Peter chapter 2 beginning in verse 4. Peter says this, And coming to him, as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed." But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy." Alexander McLaren, a British preacher from the late 1800s, said this, quote, Important lessons are given by this alteration of the two ideas of faith and unbelief, obedience and disobedience. Disobedience is the root of unbelief. Unbelief is the mother of further disobedience. As faith is obedience and submission, so faith breeds obedience. But unbelief leads on to higher-handed rebellion. The less one trusts, the more he disobeys. The more he disobeys, the less he trusts. End quote. This morning we're going to be looking at these two ideas of faith and unbelief. But we'll focus primarily on those who disbelieve, those who don't have faith, those who don't belong to the spiritual house of God. As we've been working our way through 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10, we've been looking at what it means to be a part of the spiritual house of God. Peter tells us in verse 5, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. A few Sundays ago, we looked at 1 Peter 2, verses 6 and 7, and we saw the faith of those who belong to God's spiritual house. 
We saw in verse 6 that those who believe in the precious cornerstone will not be disappointed. It will not be put to shame. But in fact, we as those who have faith in Christ, we are honored by God as those who believe in Christ. We saw this there in verse 7. But... We also saw in verse 7 that Peter makes a woeful contrast there. There's a woeful contrast where he says, but for those who disbelieve. And what Peter is doing here is he's talking about those who don't belong to the spiritual house of God. You see, there are only two types of people in this world. Those who believe in Christ and those who don't. There is no middle ground. There is no fence a person can ride and have one foot in and one foot out. There is no purgatory in which a person could go who sort of believed while they were living here on earth but can somehow get into God's spiritual house later on after death. It's not true. You either believe in Christ in this life or you don't. And we see this all throughout Scripture. It's all throughout Scripture. In fact, all the way back in Genesis chapter 4, we read of two brothers, Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel, one who had faith in God and the other one who didn't. And their faith or lack of faith was revealed in what they did. It was revealed in their life and how they acted. Abel had faith and brought the right sacrifice. Cain, on the other hand, did not have faith, but he tried to come to God on his own terms. His own way. He didn't have faith. Then we see in Matthew 6, where Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. You can only have one master. That's what Jesus is saying there. It's only one master. Either God is your master or something else will be your master. And in the context there, he's talking about wealth. But you can only have one master. Then in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus tells us that there are only two gates. One that is narrow and the other one that is broad. Then in Matthew 21, Jesus tells us a a parable of two sons. He says this to the chief priests and the elders there in Israel. He tells them a parable about two sons. One who did the will of his father and the other one who didn't. And his purpose in telling this parable 
was to say the tax collectors and the prostitutes will get into the kingdom before the chief priests and the elders because the tax collectors and the prostitutes believe in Jesus. They repented of their sin, they trusted in Jesus, and they're getting in because they believe. Whereas the chief priests and the elders wouldn't. They wouldn't get in because they were trying to get in their own way by their own religiosity, their own religious system. Then Jesus tells us in Matthew 25 about the sheep and the goat judgment that will happen right before Christ establishes the millennial kingdom. The sheep are the believing Gentiles and the goats are the unbelieving Gentiles. It's very clear all throughout Scripture, a person is either a true believer in Christ or they're not. There's no middle ground. And that's what Peter is reminding us of in our text before us here in 1 Peter 2. He's told us about those who believe and who are a part of the spiritual house of God, but now he tells us about those who disbelieve and who are not a part of the spiritual house of God. And so as we look at this passage, verses 7 and 8 this morning, we're going to see four realities of those who aren't in the spiritual house of God. Four realities of those who aren't in the spiritual house of God. The first reality is this. They are disbelievers. They are disbelievers. Notice the second half of verse 7. Peter says there, but for those who disbelieve. Now I know that I touched on this last time, but I just want to expound on this a little bit more. You see, A person may attend a church, but that doesn't mean that they are a part of the church. They may attend a church, but it doesn't mean that they're a part of the church, the spiritual household of God. A person may respect the Bible. They may think that Christianity is a good option. They may even believe that Jesus existed as a person who walked on this earth. But believing those things doesn't mean that a person is in the spiritual household of God. Why? Well, what is required to be in the spiritual household of God? What is required is is not some form of so-called Christianity or going through the motions of what many people call Christianity. What is required to be in the spiritual house of God is belief in Jesus Christ. If you remember back up in verse 6, Peter told us, He who believes in Him, he who believes in Him, that Him there is Christ, the chief cornerstone of the church. And anyone who believes in Christ will not be disappointed. We will not be put to shame. Why? Because we belong to Christ and His church. We believe in Him. And as those who believe in Him, which by the way, if you'll remember, that word believe is not a one-time belief, but a continual ongoing belief in Christ. 
As those who believe in him, we live our lives totally dependent upon Christ as we continue to believe in him. And as Peter said at the beginning of verse 4 there, and coming to him. We continually are coming to Christ. We don't just come to him once, get salvation, and then get to go live our lives however we want to live our lives. We're totally dependent on him. We, as those who believe in him, are those that continually come to him day after day after day, hour after hour after moment by moment. Our lives are totally dependent upon Christ. See, a true believer is not someone who just knows a bunch of facts about Jesus or who thinks that the Bible is the best book out of all the options or that Christianity is the best option out of all of the religions in the world. A true believer is one who continually trusts in Christ with their whole life, with their whole being. They know that there is salvation in no other name under heaven. They know that Christ is the only way to the Father. And that any other way is the way to hell and eternal damnation. And so they are always habitually living, trusting in Christ alone for salvation. That's us. That's true believers. That's how we live our lives. But for those who disbelieve, it's the total opposite. It's the total opposite. In fact, the word here in verse 7, that word disbelieve, in the Greek is a present active participle, meaning that this is something that is ongoing in their life. They live their lives carrying on in disbelief because they don't trust in Christ alone for salvation. Now remember, how did Peter, really how did God, describe Christ back up in verse 6? Remember what he said there in verse 6. He tells us that Christ is a precious cornerstone. Christ is a precious cornerstone. And just as God describes Christ as being a precious cornerstone, the same is true for all true believers. He's not just precious to God, He's precious to us as well. He's our Savior. You see, to be a true Christian means that Christ is precious to you. He's everything to you. A true Christian will have an affection for Christ, a love for Him, a devotion to Him. Why? Because He has placed His whole life, all of His trust is in Christ for salvation. We sang about that even this morning. In Christ alone, my hope is found. All of our trust is in Christ. And therefore we love Him. He's precious to us. We're devoted to Him. Jesus said in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And in John 8, 42, Jesus told the Jews, If God were your Father, 
you would, listen to this, love me. If you truly know the Father, you would love me. Meaning they would be a true child of God. Because a true child of God loves the Son. We love Jesus. This is how we know a person has come to believe in Christ and is a true Christian. They love Christ. But those who live in disbelief, they don't have a love for Christ. There is no love for Him. They don't trust in Him. They don't have affection for Him. They don't know Him. And because they disbelieve Christ, they're not a part of God's spiritual household. They fail to enter into the house and be a child of God because they disbelieve Christ. They disbelieve Christ. And so the first reality of those who fail to be in the spiritual house of God is that they are disbelievers. They don't believe in Christ. The second reality is that they are deniers of Christ. Not only are they disbelievers, but they are deniers as well. And specifically, they are deniers of Christ. Notice the next part of verse 7 there, where Peter tells us, The stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. Now, if you were here last week, this verse should look familiar. As we looked at it, as we studied Psalm 118. This is right out of Psalm 118 where it speaks of the Davidic king who was rejected by the pagan nations that surrounded him. Psalm 118 verse 22, the psalmist says this, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And in the context of Psalm 118, it was the pagan nations who were the builders. They had rejected the king in whom God had chosen to be the king who would save Israel. But we see in the New Testament that this psalm is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. In fact, both Jesus and Peter used this psalm in a way to confront the religious leaders of the day and show that they are the builders who have rejected Christ. Jesus quotes Psalm 118 in Matthew 21, 42, and Peter quotes it in Acts 4, 11. And we have, we've looked at those verses before to show how they are confronting the, the Jewish religious leaders for rejecting Jesus as their Messiah who came to offer salvation. The religious leaders of Jesus' day, they rejected Him. They said, we don't want you. No, you're not the Messiah. You're not the King. You're not the one that we've been waiting for. And they rejected Him. And in their rejection of Christ, they were acting just like the pagan nations of David's day, and they secured their own judgment for rejecting Christ. Now, what I think would have shocked people in Jesus' day was that he attributed this rejection to the religious leaders, to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This wasn't just the common people of Israel. 
who were rejecting Jesus. These were men who were supposed to be leading the people in worship and telling them how they could be saved and spend eternity in heaven. That was their job. Their job was to point them to God. Their job was to give them the truth and preach to them and tell them how they could be saved. But what did the religious leaders do? They turned people away from Christ. They rejected him. It was these men who failed to recognize Jesus as their Messiah and who drove the people away from Christ because of their own rejection of him. They disbelieved. And you know the reality is, things haven't changed much. Still going on today. There are many false teachers out there who claim to be religious leaders, but who reject Christ. They might name the name of Christ and even claim to do things in the name of Christ. But in reality, they don't love Christ. They don't want their ministries built upon Christ. Who do they build them on? Themselves. It's all about them. They reject Christ. But what Peter does then here in our passage is he doesn't just limit it to the leaders of Israel. He did that back in Acts chapter 4 and verse 11, but here he broadens it to all of those who disbelieve. You see, somebody could look at this and go, ah, that's just the leaders of Israel. But, I mean, for everybody else, well, maybe they're not actually rejectors of Christ. Maybe they didn't deny They aren't the ones who rejected the stone. But what does Peter do? Peter broadens it here. He broadens it here to say it's not just the religious leaders, although it was the religious leaders of Jesus' day. It wasn't just them, but it's all those who disbelieve. They are rejectors of Christ. And in the specific context of 1 Peter 2 here, Peter's talking about those who are persecuting these believers. Remember the context of 1 Peter. He's writing to these people who are being persecuted for their what? Their faith. In who? Christ. And Peter is saying here, they're persecuting you because they have rejected Christ. Now, why would someone reject Christ? Good question. I mean, if we understand how precious Christ is, how amazing He is, how He is priceless, why would anyone reject Him? I'll tell you why people reject Him. They reject Him because they don't think He fits in their plans. Christ doesn't fit in their own plans. I've got plans for me. I've got plans that I want to accomplish in my life. It's about me. Christ doesn't fit into that. Their life revolves around them and their selfish desires. Christ doesn't fit in their selfish plans. So what do they do? They reject Him. 
Some reject Christ because they don't think he will suit what they are trying to build. In fact, what is the message of the gospel? You can't build anything and be right with God. Nothing. There is nothing that you and I can do to make ourselves right before God. Nothing. The gospel says you must come with nothing but repentance and faith. Turning from your sin and putting your trust in Christ alone. But they see Christ as getting in the way of what they want to build. What they want to do in their own life. And so what do they do? They reject Him. Others reject Christ because they don't believe Christ is worth the price. See, in order to be a disciple of Christ, it costs you what? Everything. It costs you everything. It costs you your very life. In fact, isn't that what Jesus said in Mark 8, 34? If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Mm, but I don't like that because I like me. In fact, I love me. Life is all about me. Jesus says I must die to me. That's right. That's what he says. It costs you everything. You've got to die to self and follow after Christ. But they're not willing to give everything over to Christ. He isn't worth it to them. So what do they do? They reject him. They reject him. But even though they reject Christ, that doesn't dismiss the fact that Jesus is the cornerstone of the true church. In fact, this is what Peter says here as he quotes Psalm 118, verse 22. Notice what he says there. This became the very cornerstone. The one who was rejected. The one that they all stood up and said, not him. He's the very one who became the cornerstone of the church. Now, there are some commentators who take this word cornerstone here to mean capstone, like a, like a capstone in an archway. Because there is great strength. That is the strongest stone in that arch is that center capstone there. And they believe this because the Greek wording here is literally the head of the corner, which is how some translations even translate it. Some of your translations that you have might say that, that he is the head of the corner. But it's better to see this as a cornerstone instead of a capstone. Why? Notice what Peter says there in verse 8. Again, he says, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. You wouldn't stumble on a capstone. You wouldn't stumble over the capstone in the archway. You would stumble over what? The cornerstone that's there at the foundation. And what Peter does there in verse 8, where he says a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, is he's actually quoting Isaiah 8 and verse 14. And he gives us two descriptions here of Christ who is the cornerstone. 
Notice what he says there. He says he is a stone of stumbling. They rejected him, but God says, yeah, he is a stone of stumbling. And again, the the Greek word that's used for stone there is the word lithos. We've talked about this before, which would be a, a stone that was specifically prepared and shaped to be used in a building. It's that cornerstone. He's a stone of stumbling. And Peter tells us, as he's quoting Isaiah 8, he says he's a rock of offense. He's a rock of offense. And the word for rock here is not lithos, but it is petra, which means a large rock. A large rock. And the imagery here is not of a stone for a building, but of a large boulder that you cannot move. That's the picture there of Christ. Not only is he the cornerstone in the building by which everything is built off of, he's the perfect cornerstone, but he is also a large stone in which no one can move. I love how one commentator describes this. He says, it is a large rock that human opposition cannot dispose of. You can reject him all day long, but guess what? You can't get rid of him. You can't dispose of him. He's a rock of offense. As much as disbelievers want to get rid of Christ, they can't. They can't. He's like a large boulder that they aren't able to move. And instead of looking at the cornerstone and saying, yes, that is the perfect stone to build on, they look at the cornerstone and they stumble over him and they will eventually be crushed by him. In fact, one commentator says this. He says, Christ is laid across the path of humanity on its course into the future. One cannot simply step over Jesus to go on about the daily routine and pass him by to build a future. Whoever encounters him is inescapably changed through the encounter. Either one sees and becomes a living stone or one stumbles as a blind person over Christ and comes to ruin. It's one or the other. You either receive him or you reject him. But there's Christ. He is that large rock which you cannot move. You got to do something with Christ. Either believe in him or you reject him. It's one or the other. You see, a person will either see the cornerstone and run to him as a living stone. Or one will stumble over him and continue to reject him and will eventually be crushed by this stone. In fact, Jesus tells us of this in Matthew 21 and verse 44. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. To them... To disbelieve Jesus is a rock of offense. 
Jesus is a rock of offense. That word offense there in the Greek is the word scandalon. And it refers to an obstacle to faith which arouses anger and rejection. Did you hear that? An obstacle to faith which arouses anger and rejection. Wasn't that the religious leaders? Anger and rejection? But then what happened? What happened at the end of the Passion Week? Was it just the religious leaders that were crying, crucify him, crucify him? No, it was who? All of the people. Yeah, they had rejected him as the Messiah. So did the people. They became angry and they rejected him. We see this even in our day. Last week, a a street preacher was shot in the face in Arizona while he's preaching the gospel. Anger and rejection. A rock of offense. They took it out on this man, but who were they ultimately rejecting? The Christ whom this man is preaching. That's whom they rejected. And so, these unbelievers, they deny Christ. They reject Him as the chief cornerstone. And so, people fail to be in God's spiritual house because they are disbelievers, because they are deniers of Christ. A third reality of these people is that they are disobedient to the Word. They are disobedient to the Word. Not only are they disbelievers and deniers, they are also disobedient. They're disobedient to the Word. Look at the middle of verse 8. Notice what Peter says there. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the Word. Peter tells us here that these unbelievers stumble. That word stumble there is a present active indicative, meaning this is something they continually do. They continue to stumble over Christ. Why? Well, Peter now explains why these unbelievers stumble and fall over the cornerstone over Christ. They do so, notice what he says there, because they are disobedient to the Word. Now, this disobedience is tied directly with the disbelief in verse 7. Disobedience is tied in with disbelief. You cannot separate disobedience from disbelief. The two are related. You see, a person will act out in disobedience to the Lord because they don't believe His Word. They don't believe it. So what do they do? They act out against it. They don't want to obey it. In fact, Jesus made it clear that those who say, Lord, Lord, in Matthew chapter 7 were never known by Christ. Why? Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 7, 23. He says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who what? Practice lawlessness. What's that? Disobedience. They practice lawlessness. They're disobedient to Christ. And their disobedience flowed from a failure to trust in Christ. Now, what does it ultimately mean that they were disobedient to the Word? 
Ultimately, they were disobedient to the gospel. They were disobedient to the gospel. In fact, over in chapter 3 and verse 1, Peter says this, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word. There's that phrase again. What's he talking about there? Husbands who are unbelievers. Who reject the gospel. And then over in chapter 4 and verse 17, he says, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. Uh Uh-oh, that's what we've been studying, right? That's what we've been talking about there. The church. It's the household of God. It's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Who's that? Unbelievers. It's the unbelievers. What does he say about them there? They don't obey the gospel. They don't obey the gospel of God. Remember, the gospel is not a suggestion. The gospel is a command. Repent and believe in Christ. Those are commands, not suggestions. You must repent of your sin and you must trust in Christ alone to be saved. This is the command that's given in the gospel. But in order to be saved, you must obey that command and respond to it. And you respond to it through believing in Christ who is the chief cornerstone. Those who disbelieve the gospel show their disbelief in Christ by their disobedience to what He has commanded. It's tied together. You can't separate the two. Disbelief leads to disobedience. And then belief leads to what? Obedience. But you can't separate the two. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells us about this disbelief in Romans chapter 1 where he tells us about the power of the gospel for salvation to everyone who believes in Romans 1.16. But then listen to what he says in Romans 1.18. He says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What's unrighteousness? Disobedience. They suppress the truth by their disobedience to it. They don't want to hear it. So what do they do? They live against it. They suppress it by their disobedience. That word over... The word disobedient in verse 8, back in our passage there, that word disobedient in the Greek is apatheo. And it means this, it means without persuasion. Without persuasion. Ah, meaning without, and patho, meaning persuasion. What is Peter telling us here? They refuse to be persuaded to obey the gospel and believe it. They refuse to be persuaded. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul did as he went from town to town? 
He was persuading people to believe in the gospel. He's preaching the gospel and persuading them, come to Christ, believe in Christ. But those disobedient people, they refuse to be persuaded. Nope, you're not going to persuade me. And then it becomes their lifestyle. It shows up in their lifestyle, how they live their life. It's an attitude of unbelief that is shown by their lack of obedience to God's word. One commentator says, disbelief is regarded in its active manifestation disobedience disbelief is regarded in its active manifestation what is that active manifestation disobedience he's right jesus even told his disciples in john 14 21 he who has my commandments and listen and keeps them is the one who loves me see how that's related You love Christ? You'll show your love for Christ by doing what? Keeping His commandments. He goes on and he says, And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. You see, you can't separate belief from obedience or disobedience. The two go together. Your obedience doesn't save you. No work of yours can save you. But your obedience will be the fruit of or the evidence of true saving faith. It's exactly what James talks about in James 2.17. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is what? It's dead. Being by itself. It's dead faith. It's not saving faith. Someone may say, I have faith in Jesus. Look at their life. Is there fruit that is being manifested in their life? Is there obedience in their life? James says, even so, faith, if it has no works, is is dead, being by itself. And a person who fails to be a part of the spiritual house of God is one who is disobedient to the word. They're disobedient to the word. Finally, not only are they disbelievers and deniers of Christ and disobedient to the word, but a fourth reality, they are destined for destruction. They are destined for destruction. Look again at the end of verse 8. Notice what Peter says there at the end of verse 8. He says, and to this doom they were also appointed. Now, as we look at this verse, we must keep in mind the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. God is sovereign over all, and at the same time, man is responsible. Man is fully responsible for what he does. We can never separate the two, and we must understand that this is exactly what Scripture teaches us. We might not always understand it. In fact, we don't, right? God is sovereign, and yet at the same time, man is is responsible for his own actions. How does that work out in my mind? I'll just tell you, it doesn't. Does it? But I believe it. 
Why? Because it's what God's Word teaches. It's true. Now, what does this mean there in verse 8, and to this doom they were also appointed? Well, notice the word doom in the NAS is in italics. What does that mean? It means that that word was added by the translators to try and help us understand this, but it's not in the original Greek. So here's what the Greek says. The Greek says this, and to this they were appointed. That word appointed there is the same word that we saw back up in verse 6 where it says, behold, I lay in Zion. Remember we talked about this. That word lay there is the same word appointed. God appointed in Zion Christ, a choice cornerstone. God did that. It was God's choosing. It was God's doing. It was God's predetermined plan that he would appoint Christ to be in Zion, Jerusalem. And Peter says here in verse 8, and to this doom they were also appointed. Now, there's much debate about this as Peter doesn't expound on it. But the question is, the question that we would ask here is, what is the this that Peter is referring to here in verse 8? Notice what he says there. And to this they were also appointed. We would say, what's the this? What are you talking about, Peter? Well, we would look at this and we would ask two questions. Is, we, is he referring to their stumbling and their final destruction? And that those who stumble are appointed to destruction in the end? Or is he referring to their disbelief which results in stumbling? Meaning they were appointed to disbelief and the result of that disbelief is destruction. How should we see this? Here's how I believe we must see this. Peter has already told us at the beginning of this letter that those believers that he's writing to are chosen according to what? The foreknowledge of God the Father. They're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The Apostle Paul is clear in Ephesians 1 that God has chosen those in whom will be saved. God has chosen them. Ephesians 1.4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. You see, God by his electing grace, by his electing love, chose before the foundation of the world to save some. Before he created the world, before he created us, God already, in eternity past, at some point in eternity past, he chose to save us. He chose those in whom he was going to put his grace upon and save. But in doing that, in electing some, God chose to pass over others. Which means he didn't elect them. What did he do? Passed over them. And he chose only those in whom would be saved. 
So those whom God has passed over will live in what? Unbelief. They'll live in unbelief. And as they continue to live in unbelief, they will continue to manifest that unbelief by continually rejecting Christ and living in disobedience to Him. And yet, they are still held responsible for their unbelief. That's what the Bible teaches. There's no getting around that. They are held responsible for their unbelief. Let me help you a little bit with this. Take your Bibles and turn over to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. This is Peter's first sermon. On the day of Pentecost, and Peter, as he stands up to preach, in Acts chapter 2, Notice what he says in verse 22. He says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, who is that? It's Jesus. This man, Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Whoa. What do we do with this? You mean this was all God's predetermined plan? For Jesus to go to the cross? what it says here in verse 23 he was delivered over jesus was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of god and yet what does peter say there who nailed him to the cross who's responsible the jews you nailed him to the cross you're responsible for your actions for what you did but i thought this is god's predetermined plan it is so how are they responsible because that's what the scripture says. <laughs> See, Peter charges those who crucified Christ as it being their choice and their act to reject Christ and to nail him to the cross. But why did they do this? Because it was God's predetermined plan. It was the predetermined plan of God. You see, God predestined the execution of Christ, and yet those Jews who handed Christ over to the Romans to have him executed were responsible for their unbelief, and they were responsible for their actions. They weren't coerced into crucifying Jesus against their wills. They acted out in their unbelief. Turn over to Acts chapter 4. And look at verse 27. This is the prayer after the apostles have been released, Peter and John. They come then to 
where the believers are gathered together and they begin to pray to God in verse 24. When they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord. They're praying here. Notice what it says in verse 27. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus. Again, they're praying to God. That's why the the Y in, in your is capitalized there. They're praying to God, truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, notice verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Uh Uh-oh. What do I do with this? I mean, we live in a world that's all about who? Me, man-centered. It's all man-centered. I have the choice to do whatever it is that I want to do. What does Peter say? This was all predestined to occur was all in the plan of God. Those who crucified Christ, it was predestined for them to do that. It was already predetermined that they would do that. And yet, they were responsible for everything that they did. They're responsible for the rejection of Christ. And the same is true of those who were persecuting Peter's readers back in 1 Peter chapter 2. You see, those who are persecuting the believers, they are acting out in their unbelief in the cornerstone, and yet this is all playing out under the sovereign hand of God. The persecution of these believers is all playing out under the sovereign hand of God. And those who were persecuting these believers, they will be judged for their disbelief and for their stumbling over Christ. Why? Peter tells us here, to this they were appointed. They were appointed to it. This is all a part of God's predetermined plan, and yet they are still responsible for rejecting Christ. Now, how do we resolve this? We don't. Let me just help you. We don't. We just believe it. Because that's what the Scripture tells us. That's what God tells us in His Word. And we must believe what God has revealed to us in His Word. Now, going back to to verse 8 there, to this doom they were also appointed. What is Peter's main point? Why is Peter saying this here? Why is he telling these persecuted believers about 
those that were persecuting them, these unbelievers, and saying, to this doom they were also appointed. Why does he do this? Peter's point here is to offer comfort to these persecuted believers who are a part of God's spiritual house. He says this to them to comfort them. And what doctrine does he comfort them with? He comforts them with the doctrine of God's sovereignty. Listen, church, you want to be comforted? Meditate upon the sovereignty of God. We look at the world around us and it's in chaos, utter chaos, total chaos. Listen, church, God is sovereign. (laughs) Nothing is happening today outside of God's control. Nothing. Isn't that comforting? That is so comforting. And that's what Peter is doing here for his readers. He's saying, listen, they were appointed for this doom. They were were appointed for for this, this disbelief and their stumbling over. Listen, it's all working out under the sovereign hand of God. Which means that no one can do anything to us outside of the sovereign hand of God. No one. We belong to Him. We're His children. He loves us. He has set His love upon us. And what can separate us from His love? Nothing. Isn't that comforting? And that's what Peter is saying here. Even all the evil that's going on in this world, it's all happening under the sovereign hand of God. And no one is acting out. Those that are acting out in evil, none of them are acting out against their wills. They're not. They're acting out what is in their heart. And what is in their heart? Unbelief. Unbelief in the cornerstone. But none of the evil that's happening in this world is out of God's control. Even with those who oppose Christ and persecute believers, nothing is outside of God's control. In fact, for those who disbelieve and disobey Christ, they are destined for destruction. God will make sure that there is justice because He's a just God. Now, what do we do with people then whom Peter has just described for us? What do do we do with these disbelievers, deniers of Christ, those that are disobedient to the word and destined for destruction? What do we do with them? I'll tell you what we do with them. We give them the gospel. We give them the gospel. We pray for them that they won't reject Christ, but that they will receive Christ. And we warn them. We warn them about rejecting Christ and tell them of our precious Savior and urge them to turn from their sin and trust in the chief cornerstone.
closing, turn over to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. This is Jesus preaching here. Notice what he says in verse 21. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Notice again, obedience is tied to belief. Look at verse 22. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Notice verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who builds his house on what? The rock. The cornerstone. The chief cornerstone. Verse 25, And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Verse 26, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and slammed against that house. And it fell, and great was its fall. This is what we must tell people. This is what we must urge them to do, to come to the rock, to come to the chief cornerstone, the precious cornerstone, not to stumble over the rock, but to trust in the rock have their life built upon the rock so that they might be safe. Church, we don't know who the elect are. There are those that are out in the world who are disbelievers right now, but who are elect of God. Isn't that amazing? You know how they will be saved? They must hear the gospel. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the words of Christ. They must hear. What is our job? Go preach the gospel to them. Urge them. Tell them, come to the rock. He's precious to me and he can be precious to you. You must repent of your sin and trust in him. And if you do that, you will be a living stone and you will have everlasting life. That is our job. May we be faithful to go and preach this great and glorious gospel for God's glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that speaks to our hearts. Lord, we thank you for 
what you have revealed to us in your word. But Lord, even though there are things that are hard for us to understand, Lord, you have revealed it to us to know and to believe. Lord, help us not to be man-centered, but to be God-centered, to be Bible-centered, to center our lives upon Christ who is our rock and to believe His Word and to live out His Word for Your glory. Father, I pray for anyone who is here this morning who has not built their life upon the rock, who has not repented of their sin and trusted in Christ for salvation. Lord, I pray that you would grant them the gift of repentance and faith that they would trust in Christ and that today would be the day of salvation for them. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be faithful, to live out the gospel in our own lives as we call others, urge them to come to Christ, to believe in Him, and as we live out our belief in Him, as we live in obedience to You, may it all be for Your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.